Essentials. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Law Students Essentials. I'm Benny, Will, and today we have a special episode where we have a special guest, also a law student. We have Nathan here today. How you doing? And today we're going to cover a nice range of topics, and I think it's going to be a great and informative episode. So without further ado, let's get started. Take it away, Will. Right. Uh, thank you, Benny. Nathan, can you introduce yourself a little bit? Yeah, my name is Nathan. I am a 2L, um, a second-year law student. Well, originally, um, law school was not on my plans. That was not the agenda at all. Mm-hmm. I was going to go nonprofit or be a translator, a Japanese translator. Um, but I did a year at AmeriCorps. And I was working with nonprofit organizations, helping them create some type of project that they wanted to do to help beautify or fix their neighborhood in the area. And I noticed that everything that we were doing came back to law. Um, for future or sustainable change, you have to have some type of structure to actually have that change right. happen. Um, and that's where I started looking at law schools. Um, I went to lunch with a lawyer, and it just seemed like that was the right fit. Here I am. That's pretty good. And you also taught in Japan. You taught English in Japan, right? I did. I taught English for almost two years in Japan. Um, nine different schools in in remote country area. Wow. So, and how was that? It was a great experience. I mean, I had to do lesson plans and find some way to teach students who knew no words in English whatsoever, but I could only speak English to them. That was the requirement. Even though I know Japanese, I had to only use English in the classroom. So... Using gestures and pictures, it showed me that you can communicate far beyond just using words. Where about in Japan? Uh, Toyama, Japan. Um, okay. Yeah, it's a really, it's a beautiful area. Pretty good. Yeah, mountains and the sea. Great. Okay, so you have any, like, what's your future goal as a lawyer? Uh, that again keeps changing. Um, <laughs> I thought I wanted to do some sort of community development and community activist work. Um, and that's where I worked with legal aid over the summer doing like juvenile rights practice. Um, but I think that it's going to change. Um, I'm going to intern at a firm over the summer. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that will flourish into something that I enjoy. I do love litigation though. So whatever I do has to be litigation focused. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think what's interesting is the position you did last summer. I've heard some very interesting details. If you could talk about it, just what a typical day at work was like, and what were some challenges that you faced? Of course. Um, well, the summer that was at the Legal Aid Society, it was the juvenile rights practice. Um, hmm. So Legal Aid, they represent the children in custody matters or neglect cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting because even though your client could be a six-year-old, um, you still have to listen and take into account what they say and what they want. You're not trying to input judgment on them or what they should and shouldn't do. So it's an interesting role between the state and representatives of the parent, and then we're representing the children. So sometimes all those don't align. Um, but it was great because I got to meet some like really great kids that just have been put into really unfortunate circumstances, um, either neglect, abuse, um, sexual abuse, you name it, and that's that's what came into the office. I think the the hardest challenge that you asked, Benny, was probably the emotional damage that, that you kind of take. It's the second trauma. Like, it kind of transfers over to you. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So doing research on like sexual assault for eight hours straight can can really have a toll on you. Um, but and I can also imagine for the kids as well. Yeah, having to go through it. Exactly. And would they actually go and present in court? So we would present the cases in court. Um, sometimes the children would be there if they're older and they wanted to be there in the room. Other times we would just be there on their behalf. Um, but I mean, the kids were like if they're older teens. I had a two that stand out. Um, one was a guy who was 19 years old and he was neglected by his parents and he was trying to be adopted by another family and he was going to school upstate, getting ready for college. Um, but he still wanted to see his mother. So we were trying to fight for him to see his mother and get visitation rights. Um, but the state was kind of pushing back on that. But he would be in the courtroom advocating for himself. And just like this other lady, she was trying to find housing for her and her kids. Um, she was a teenage mother and, and just seeing her empowered and advocating for for housing was was amazing. That was great. It was a great experience. Yeah, it was really great. It must be very rewarding. It was, it was, and challenging, but I mean, even as um legal aid society allows you to to actually have input, so instead of just doing research and giving them the papers, they actually have you do the work. Um they have you write summations or motions to the court, um, present them to the judge. So it's really rewarding. And that's also important, I think, because as law students, we could use any practical training as much as we can get. And it's different from class where we're just reading about cases, but from actually working in them, I think we could learn a lot. Exactly. Exactly. What about this, this summer position at a law firm? Um, well, we'll see where this summer. I haven't started yet, obviously, uh-huh. but... Um, this is going to be a, a large law firm, so it's going to be drastically different than Legal Aid Society. Okay. And the cushiness of nine to five is no longer <laughs> <laughs> is no longer an option. But um, I think I want to do either like the litigation department or um, employment, labor and employment law. Right. So, so we'll see. Congratulations. Oh, thanks. thanks. Moving on. All right. And also, Nathan, I understand you did. Uh, Moot Court Trial Division. We went over Appellate Division in the past in this series, but I think we should also cover Trial Division. And so if you could just explain how what a typical tryout is like, Mm -hmm. and then we could talk about what a competition is like. And and I know you did some coaching. Right. Right. And so what would that entail and how it worked out? Okay. So um, first I can talk about the tryouts. for the trials, you have to do an opening statement and a cross-examination. Um, for the opening statement, it's, it's merely like a, it's a snippet to a, like a story, almost like a movie clip. Um, so you just have to tell the jury what they're going to see. Um, you can't get into any details or anything like that. Uh, you know, you're risking a mistrial if you go into any conclusory statements. But it's, it's supposed to draw them in and be very very catching to them. Um, this is the first time that you're interacting with the jury after the voir dire. Mm-hmm. So you, it's really important to make a connection with them. Um, and that's always going to change depending on your population. Um, you want to keep it pretty simple in the language. Um, it's more like a conversation like we're having right now. Um, and it's always nice to have some sort of, not a pop reference, but um, maybe an analogy or something that they can tie the case to so they can know exactly what's going to happen. It's like a theory or a theme, and that kind of carries out throughout the case. 
And then the cross-examination is, is where you're questioning the witness, um, the opposing side's witness. And you always have an agenda. So I like to make out bullet points on, on the topic and the questions. You start up very broad and you start narrowing it down slowly until you finally get like that click that you want. Um, but the key is never to ask that last question, that wrong question, because then they can kind of wiggle their way out of it. I don't know. I, I always thought that um, you guys know George Mason, the. Uh, oh yeah. 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 <laughs> so I thought I would have like an aha moment, like in the cross examination, but it never happens. You have to just like tailor it and keep it succinct and, and real short. Um, always close questions, so never allow them to explain anything. It's either a yes or no. Asking questions that you know the answer to. And so, what would a typical competition look like? Because at that point you're competing against law, law students from other law schools. And what, what's the typical layout of a competition? Uh, what kind of judging is used? Well, um, the competitions can actually vary. Um, I kind of did two drastically different competitions, but typically what happens is you get a fact pattern. Um, it's pretty neutral. Um, that way both defense and prosecution or plaintiff can have um, equal amount of evidence. Uh, so you read through the fact pattern, you look at the evidence, and then from there, as a team, you decide what side you want to play. Typically, you have two on prosecution and two on defense, um, and then you split it up from there. And you try to create a theory and a theme of that case on what happened. Um, and you're working with your co-counsel to figure out the questions you want to ask, um, what you think happened, and how you'll prove what happened. And... You also def- divide up the, um, the witnesses, who you'll be direct examining and who you'll be cross-examining. And then also the opening and closing statements. Each a person does one of those statements. So depending on what you're comfortable with, the opening statement is mostly memorized. It's, you write it beforehand and, and you'll know exactly what you're going to say. But the closing statement, that since the trial can go any which direction you have to adapt and and tailor it to that specific trial so it's more thinking on your feet so a typical trial i'm a competition you after you create all of this you start practicing and do what we call mystery teams so you'll have alumni or other moot court students coming in and you'll compete against them you'll basically run the whole trial and they'll have their own mystery themes and theories and you have to try to figure out what to do and how to enter evidence in. Um, And then the day of the competition, there's two preliminary rounds. Um, And based on those rounds, you'll see if you advance. You're going against, like you said, many schools from all around. Usually it's like the East Coast schools or the Midwest all come together. Um, Up to like 36 to 40 schools can can be there. And it's, uh, I mean, it's a lot of fun, a lot of energy. And the judges are actually attorneys, practicing attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, they're doing it for CL credit. Mm-hmm. So they're trying to get their, their hours in, mm-hmm. and this is a way that they can do it, mm-hmm. which can be good um, because they have experience, so we can learn from them. Mm-hmm. Um, at the end of the trial, they give us feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, but this also makes it a little difficult because if you're, say, you're a prosecution and you're the judge on the bench is a defense attorney, mm-hmm. he might carry some of his biases mm-hmm. into... Right into the judging and the scoring but that's when you have to adapt and just and kind of read 
people and read the judges' faces and, and see what they're allowing into evidence and what they're not. And if you know that the judge hates hearsay arguments, then <laughs> you may not do any hearsay arguments. And is there an actual jury there when you're doing it? There's up to usually three, three judges. The judges and the jury kind of, there's one presiding judge who, who does the rulings on the evidence and the evidentiary um, arguments. But then there's three in the jury box who are also keeping score. Um, so you have to tailor it to them as well. So that's interesting because as a, unlike appellate division, which is very formal, mm-hmm. and a competition in appellate division is always more focused on legal issues, and you won't have a jury, right? It's just you and the appellate judges, and they're asking you questions, and you're answering them, and you make your argument. But trial seems to be more of a dynamic, more dynamic experience because you have a co-counsel, which you don't have in appellate division. And along with the judge asking you questions, you also have the jury to contend with and making a good impression. And in trial, it's always more than the facts. You know, you got to build your case and try and get the jury on your side. So that, I think that's pretty interesting. It is. It is. It's a lot of, it's a lot of things to juggle and a lot of things to ha- handle at the same time because you want to be a, a zealous advocate for your client. Um, and there's so as an attorney, you have this obligation, this this duty, but then you also have to realize that behind the the legal arguments that you're making, that you're dealing with people still, and then you have to kind of tailor to them and and make it palatable so they can understand and sympathize for your client or um, relate to them. So there's a lot going on. How do you train yourself to be a good litigator? I mean, with anything, practice. Um, I think the the times that I've learned the most is when it was with a serious mistake. I mean, I think now is the best time for us to make mistakes because, right. you know, people's lives aren't in jeopardy. But um, learning from other people, keeping an open mind, um, being able to adapt and try new things, you have to be able to take yourself out of your comfort zone and and see what works. I think that's what that's the biggest the biggest um, learning tool. Just trying it and seeing what works for you. It's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I asked them to come. Uh, and so, what, what about litigation? Is it that you think that draws people into it? Because I feel like it's a a subject area where people either love it or hate it. Like myself, I really don't like it. <laughs> but I'm just curious, what is it about litigation that draws people in? I, I think the it's the people part. Um, you're dealing with clients. I, with, you know, transactional contract work, it's black and white. You know, you have the paper there. You have a client that you're representing, but you're mostly dealing with the law and the facts. Um, but if you enjoy working with people, um, I think that's a big part of the litigation. You have to be able to communicate with all types of people from all different backgrounds. Um, and if you love that, then typically you'll like litigation. Um, and another thing is, it's a puzzle. Like, you're trying to figure things out, um, play with facts without lying or, or you know, um, twisting it too much. But you're playing with things to see to see where the truth is. And so it's, it's a game almost. It's a puzzle that you have to figure out. And that's the challenge. Um, that's always changing. It's, it's, uh, 
you never know what what's going to happen next. So you have to try to keep on and stay on your toes. I think that's another thing that draws people in. All right. So and usually on the series, we talk about law school experience mm-hmm. in general because we try and address issues that prospective law students might face. So if you could talk about what your favorite parts about law school are as a 2L student and some parts that you don't like so much and perhaps some advice for current 1Ls or prospective law students. Yeah. um, I think there's two... There's two competing ideas. This one is specifically for the the one else, like or or prospective law students. There's two competing ideas of what what you should do in law school your first year. Should you only focus on the books and study and get the best grades that you can, or should you also devote some time to um, activities like clubs or um, affinity groups, whatever that is. Um, or going out to networking events. Um, I've met people who only went the route of the studying, and then myself, I kind of went the other way and added the the social elements to it. Um, I think you need to realize that you can do one or the other. You don't have to conform to either of these ideas. Um, Good grades alone might not get you a job, but having terrible grades also will not get you a job. So you have to find that balance. that work-life balance is is key your first and second year, because um, law school, as we all know, is stressful, especially during finals time. You put in all this work for, you know, four months, and then one day an exam can determine yeah. your whole future, which can be nerve-wracking. Um, so if you just balance and have that balance, I think that's the the one piece of advice that. I have for for incoming students. Uh, I actually was a a TA for some incoming students at our school, um, and I I was talking with them and and seeing, you know what what they were interested in and what they were having troubles with, and it was always the stress and how do you balance? How do I have time for this? Because I mean you have fifty hours of work in a day, but there's only twenty four, and you do have to sleep, right? Okay. So learning to prioritize and and realize that you might not be able to get everything done, but you can get the important things done and still and still have fun with it. And what's one thing that you would like to see law schools change in the future to better help law students with their career goals and with their studies in general? I would say since the job market is changing so drastically, I mean, after the the 2008 crash, like law firms and um, like legal aid society or firms or whatever jobs that people are looking into drastically changed. There's not as many as there were. We're not guaranteed a job anymore. So I'd like to see law schools be more practical with that. Um, we still have to learn all these classes like contracts and constitutional law. Um, they're important and I would not ask any law school to change that. Um, but I think there needs to be more of a practical element, more of a um, a conversation in class on how this might apply in the future and other tools and resources that we can actually have to find jobs. Um, even though you're working over the summer, sometimes that's, depending on where you're working at, you might not have the same experiences or same opportunities to actually implement the skills that you'll need in the future. Um, so if law schools can kind of ensure or help with that, 
I think that would help us as future attorneys. Uh, one thing I also wanted to ask you about is on a previous episode, we talked about mediation. Mm. And so as law students, we always hear about litigation, transactional work, you know, like big law firm things. But what would you say, and I know you're doing mediation uh, at a law school clinic right now. What would you say is the biggest difference between mediation and those other two types of law practice? And how has it how has the experience changed your outlook on the legal profession? Well, even though I, before the mediation clinic, I knew that um, not many cases actually go to trial. They actually either get settled or dropped. Um, and so I knew that mediation and negotiation were going to be a big, big part of that. But I didn't quite know what it looked like. Um, and so this clinic has shown me the... As a, a neutral party, just looking at both sides um, can be difficult. Um, you have to sit at a table with people who are in complete, usually complete disagreement with um, with their side and what they're looking for. And so what the challenge is and what's opened my eyes is the the ability for to step back and look at a situation um, through a different lens or try to have no biases whatsoever and working with two different parties and trying to just show them that they're they're close to agreeing on something even if their 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 numbers can be off by a thousand dollars or thousands of dollars the simple fact that they're moving and they're negotiating shows that they want to make these agreements i think it's almost natural for it's natural for us to make agreements and to negotiate and to and create these these bonds and these relationships but we've also been kind of socialized for like litigation um, we're surrounded by litigation so we think that if we negotiate or we mediate then we're losing something um, but it can be more cost effective in the in the long run to just negotiate um, we don't think about the long-term cost of litigation. We just think about getting what we want. Right. Uh, so I think that's that's a big eye-opener. Um, what you lose in the short term, you can actually gain in the long run. And as someone who loves litigation, do you think you would recommend mediation to one of your clients in the future? Or would you be more inclined to follow that litigation road? Uh, it, would be, it would be dependent on that case. Um, I would say that mediation is always an option, um, but if you're working out of like a a serious um, injury, uh, injury law firm, and and you know that there's no there's no real opportunity to mediate, um, then I would take it to litigation. But that can also be a tool as well because mediation is completely confidential. Whatever is spoken about in that settlement conference will not be taken to the judge. Um, so even though you may give up some information that could hurt your case, um, you can also learn a lot about the other side before litigation. So it can also be a power tool. If, even if you don't want to um, come to a settlement that day, you can use that information and kind of tweak your arguments for litigation. And I also think it's useful in the sense that they're in trials, it's mostly adversarial. Exactly. So the sides may not be willing to negotiate 
or to see the other side as a potential, uh, let's say, colleague in making the dispute work out. But in mediation, I think it's in private. You know, there's no jury. There's no one to judge you. So the lawyer can still be present and defend their client uh, zealously. But I think there's more room and opportunity to actually resolve the dispute in a mutually beneficial way. I agree. And you also have that that neutral, the mediator, the neutral party who can kind of help facilitate that discussion. Um, even though they're advocating zealously, they can still have that that neutral party to kind of show them that possibly there there's still room to to settle this. That's great. Um, I heard that you are in the corporate journal. So, what did you write about there? I wrote about the um, basically modern day slavery and how we're using it to for products. Um, either the raw materials or actually the production of products and how this slave labor is so ingrained in a part of our supply chain. Um, California, as well as um, the United Kingdom, have started this this law or this bill, whatever you want to call it, um, regarding um, slave labor being used. So they're, they're forcing large corporations to actually publicly admit or how they're using slave labor or if they are using slave labor. And it gives the people who are buying a power, like more power to actually decide if they're going to purchase this item. Um, and so hopefully this, this will kind of deter the companies from using the slave labor in other countries uh, as well as in America to, because they want to make profit. That's what they're here for. Is if people are not buying their products, then they're losing profit. So they're hoping that this would be a deterrence. But my focus was that we need to have more of a more of a government influence with this. Um, not only can we have like this public shaming, if you will, but there has to be an, a law and teeth behind that law. Um, there's the Dodd-Frank Act, which came out of the 2008 crisis. Um, and there is a portion of it that prohibits the use of basically blood diamonds or precious stones mm. out of the Congo. And I think that we should have a, a basically a, a mixing of the two, of that Dodd-Frank portion, as well as the, the California United Kingdom law. Um, mixing those, I think, would really help eradicate the slavery out of, out of the supply chain. Do you have a sense that perhaps corporations are taking on more of a responsibility role or do you see that in the near future at all? I do. I think the um, the there's a shift that of corporate responsibility that's happening. Um, before the corporations were entities, any business basically was an entity that was only there to make profit, profit for the company, for the shareholders, for the owners. Um, but now there's like this social responsibility that we're seeing, and that's drastically shifting the laws that are are like the governance laws of the corporation. So I think this shift is going to bring about more corporate responsibility because as a society, we have, we have more access to information. Before, we, we didn't have cell phones that had every, right. everything in the palm of our hand or television and radio that told us what's going on. Like that. So if a corporation is messing up, everyone's learning about it immediately. People are tweeting on it on social media. Um, they're speaking out about it. And that is going to change, I think, how corporations function in the sense of um, social responsibility. 
Moving on. Okay, so Justice Scalia recently passed away, which surprised so many people in this country. What do you think about his opinions? He has an interesting look on take on the law. I, I, I fundamentally disagree with the black letter aspect of the Constitution. I think it's a living document. Um, the world that we see it changes every day, and I think the law needs to adapt to that. And and the reading things that they were when they were when the Constitution was written can I think can be detrimental to certain populations and and to certain people. So it needs to be. But it's hard though. Like, is is the court and supposed to control? social aspects or are they just strictly going to do the law and it's up to us as a people to to vote for the state to make the, the legislator actually pass these laws that we want yeah i agree but i feel like supreme court judge especially since there's supposed to be a check on the other two branches yeah. they have to be tuned in i think to what's going on right those personal lives while at the same time knowing the law and all that stuff but I feel like some of them maybe are not. Like, Into, for example, they get people send their cases, right? right? They don't take them. Even, even if, especially if they're very controversial, they won't take it. Right. Which is wrong because I think that's what you're supposed to. You're supposed right. to, like, do that. Like, go over the controversial stuff. If you're just going to go over, like, the, the, the stuff thing. that they know already where it's going to end up at, right. I don't think that. They're doing their job. They're just doing one side of it. Yeah, it needs to be all. I mean, there's a lot of, like, like Roe v. Wade and and Brown v. Board of Education, like these these things would not have happened if it wasn't for the Supreme Court. You know, like there's sometimes the Supreme Court has to step in and and take a stance um, to to bring our society and our laws up to date. But I hope they don't wait until there's like a civil rights movement, like people start fighting. I know. I, I know. feel like some cases they took because they were forced. It was they were forced. Yeah, backed into a corner to to make a decision. All right, a great discussion is going on here. Um, so, I heard you are working as a Bloomberg representative. So, what do you do as a Bloomberg representative? Uh, as a Bloomberg rep, um, basically, it's your product advocate. Um, so, you're trying to show students how they can use Bloomberg as a resource because we all learn about Lexis and Westlaw. Um, we don't learn about Bloomberg too much. Um, and so we're trying to show students how they can actually use this, not replace Westlaw and Lexus whatsoever, um, but to sh- add this to their to their tool belt. Um, there's a lot of document templates on there that you can use, a lot of forms. And what another great thing that Bloomberg has um, that I use a lot was researching lawyers and researching law firms. So you can actually learn about cases that they that they worked on, um, or learn about kind of their their background. Um, a lot more thoroughly and a lot more legal-based than um, LinkedIn is. And so that can be a, a really helpful tool for when you're interviewing. Because right. you you need to know a little bit about the person that you're interviewing with because um, it might be a talking point. Mm-hmm. You know, If you're sitting across the table from a former justice or judge, you should know that. Um, that's a that's a big a big factor that that can that can play. Right. And being a representative, is that something any law student can do? It is. Any law student can do that. Um, every law school um, that I'm aware of um, has Bloomberg 
a main Bloomberg representative. And so if you just reach out to them, um, if you're a student that is interested in researching tools but also interested in meeting and talking to other students, then it can be a great opportunity to to add to that, that repertoire. Nathan, thank you for coming in today. We Thanks. appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And thank you all for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. All right. Thank you, Benny. Thank you, Nathan. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Stay tuned. It is essential.